This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, F. Scott Field. Today, we have the one and only Dr. Ricardo Fernandez. Now, Ricardo has been working as a PT for the past 28 years, and he quickly rose in the healthcare profession and has worked in a variety of settings, including acute care, outpatient, private practice, and in education. With his educational background, he has also been an adjunct instructor at Governor State University, Morton College, Northwestern University, and Oakton Community College. He has served as a clinical instructor for 87 students during their clinical affiliations throughout his career. Ricardo has also been involved with protecting the public as he has written PT licensure exam questions and orthopedic specialty exam questions for PTs sitting for the board certifications in orthopedics. He was reappointed to serve on the Illinois Physical Therapy Licensing and Disciplinary Board in 2012 and has served as chairperson until 2016. And he has also generated his time generously to community-based organizations, and he has presented over 150 physical therapy and health-related lectures to various groups. Additionally, he has presented over 150 professional presentations across the country to physical therapists and other healthcare professionals for continued education. He is a licensed PT and a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and he's currently enjoying clinical practice and also doing clinical education as well. Now, I first met Dr. Fernandez when I was in PT school at Northern Illinois University, and he came in to talk with our DPT class, and I was really amazed at his vast knowledge and experience with so many aspects of PT, you know, from the clinician side, being a clinical instructor, a regular educator, and a board member, and so many others. Dr. Fernandez, Thank you so much for your dedication to the profession, and we're so lucky to have you on the show. Is there anything that you'd like our audience to know about you that I left out of your intro? Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is quite a, a pleasure to be able to share my experience with you, and uh, I'm just glad to be invited. Yeah, look, you have a very complete bio there. The only thing that I, I think that I was a full-time professor at Northwestern just for four years. And then I went back into clinical practice, but I did my research there, uh, my PhD research looking at knee injuries. But uh, other than that, you have a quite uh, extensive bio that you have complete there. Excellent. Ricardo, with your experiences ranging among the clinical, educational, um, and the administrative roles throughout the course of your career, do you think you could tell our audience uh, a little bit about your journey into the educational roles, including being a CI and an adjunct professor? Sure. Thank you. What happened with me, uh, I was working at a acute care hospital, Ingalls Hospital in Harvey, and about six months into it, a lot of our staff, it was all women that I work with, were pregnant or were unable to take a student. So about six months in, I had my first experience with a student. And I, I learned uh, very quickly that as a CI, you learn a lot about 
teaching and about uh, the profession, how to explain yourself, documentation, and I really enjoyed it. It was a good experience for me and the student, even though it was, I was very new CI, I was able to find ways to, to make it a, a meaningful experience for her. And it's something that I, I always enjoyed, and I always thought that we have a responsibility to, to give back to the community, because me being a physical therapy student back in the day, I had four CIs, so I, I thought I'd at least take four students just to make it even, but I really enjoyed the experience so much, and I felt I grew so much that I continued to take students. So once I started taking students, I realized I had to learn more about how to be effective as a clinical instructor. So I went through APTA's Credentialed Clinical Instructor Program, and I got to learn how to deal with uh, students that were either exceptionally bright or needed guidance and documentation to support their deficits. And the more I started going into clinical education, the more enjoyable it was, the more effective I became as a clinical instructor. And yeah, I've had 87 students, and one of my students right now is my, my boss where I work. Another one works with me. They've gone on to have great careers, and you take a lot of pride in seeing your students grow. And when you teach in the academia, you don't really see the growth, but in the clinic, you know, every day you see the student become you know, more like you and more effective as a physical therapist. And I always chuckle, and I always know the students made it when the patients ask to see the student instead of me. <laughs> that's something that I always I always look for is like, okay, that's good. The patient rather have you, even though you're a student, that's wonderful. You're doing the right thing. And so I found it real enjoyable to, to be a CI. And then once I became a CI, I started communicating with the ACCEs at different schools at Governor State. I took students in Northwestern. Then they started asking me to come and be a lab instructor. So I would go to Northwestern and Governor State, and I would sit in and be a lab instructor, help with basic anatomy and kinesiology and movement. And they had me come in and role play and then start getting more involved. And uh, it all stemmed from taking students and just having the willingness to teach and to be there and help guide someone. And it's really opened a lot of doors for me. And like I met Brandon at Northern last year. I, I lectured at nine different colleges last year. So it's nice. You get to go in these colleges I went to NIU, Fox, UIC, Governor State, Rosalind Franklin, Morton, Rain Valley, a couple of grade schools. It, it, you go in there, you get to do your thing, and you get to leave and go back and do what you love, and that's clinical practice is number one for me. But I think getting involved, taking a student, being willing to be a lab instructor has really helped a lot. And then when I was working at a large company, Health South, I was one of the younger therapists there. And so I took all the classes I could take, and I've taken over 300 CE courses throughout my career of 28 years. And when you go to these courses, you start to know the teachers, and so they started asking me to come and be a lab instructor. So I started getting more experience uh, with teaching knee courses, ankle courses, shoulder courses, and really expanded my network of people that I knew. So I got to work with people like Kevin Wilk, a real famous you know, physical therapist, uh, I actually volunteered to become a therapist under him, but I taught with him. And you hear him teach, and you wonder how I would have taught, and you really get to be a better instructor by watching others. And then I think also the network increases. So once you have ability to do some adjunct teaching, once openings happen at the colleges, they give you offers. <laughs> they want to get you to come and do more. And but I think it all started from first having a willingness to teach, you know, taking a student, being open to new opportunities, and also community 
presentations. I've done hundreds. I go to all these schools and I donate my time and I practice my speaking skills. I practice advocating for our profession. And when you do this and when you teach in the clinic, you practice your anatomy, you practice your movement, you practice your exercises. And it makes you more effective as a a teacher, I think, to have all those different levels of exposure. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And, you know, and with your experience as an educator, I'm sure you've learned a lot of things about, you know, yourself and how you treat even too. And, and I tell you, my, my patients love when I have a student because I will explain something in a very technical manner to the student and then I'll, or the student explains it to me very technically. And then we bring it down to English real quick. And I think that's a good skill to have is to translate from medical lingo to common sense lingo. And patients love when I have a student. And I think I'm a better therapist when I have a student because I do take the time to explain the little things that sometimes us experienced therapists kind of gloss over. So I'm, I'm glad that I have a student with me most of the time. Probably about a, th- a third of my time is with a student. And I think it makes me better. Oh, I- I'm sure. I mean, I've never had a student yet formally, but I look forward to having one real soon because I'm just so pumped to get into the CI mode. And I know I really want to do that. But yeah, no, I think what you said before about how to really meet the patient on their level of understanding based on what they need, because something I've learned is you can't use certain medical terms with certain people, otherwise you're going to lose them. But for the perhaps more informed clients or even other healthcare provider in general that wants that kind of a dialect, you have to kind of accommodate and kind of meet the patient where they're at. So I think that's a really good point. Yes. You know, Ricardo, with all those in- incredible roles that you've been on throughout your journey as a PT, I'm kind of curious, what prompted you to join the PT Disciplinary Board? Well, uh, quite honestly, when I was asked to, to join, I didn't know all that much about it. And IPTA President Peter McMenamin came up to me and said, you know, Ricardo, you're doing all these things to help the public. And obviously, you care to have good physical therapists out there. You're writing test questions. You're taking students, etc." It's like, you should think about this board. I'm like, well, exactly. I don't know what it is. And so he gave me a job description and pretty much that was it. And he said, "This the governor's going to give you a call. And at that time, it was Governor Blagojevich. So never met the person. It doesn't sound like uh, it sounds like I might know the I don't, but this association puts a name out. So they wanted my name. So I said, sure, I'll do the interview. So I, I went downtown and I interviewed with Gary Bluthart and told him why I wanted uh, to be on the board. And the real gist of it was I want to protect the public. So I want the public to when they have a physical therapist. They have a physical therapist that's qualified and competent and compassionate and ethical and legal. And so I thought this was a good extension. So I did the interview and I was all excited. And then Governor Blagojevich was arrested and went to jail. So uh, I had to wait until the new governor was appointed, uh, Governor Quinn, and I went to the board. Yeah. Ricardo, do you think you could discuss your experience on the PT disciplinary board? Yes. Uh, So it's a, a board of seven members. Six are physical therapists or physical therapist assistants. And one's a public non-physical therapist or physical therapist assistant. And so what we do here in Illinois is we help with people want a license in Illinois. We would kind of look and make sure that the qualifications from wherever they're coming from equals the standards that we need. So the FSBPT or the Federation State Boards of Physical Therapists, they usually do a lot of the work for us with scoring. If you're foreign trained, can you speak English? Is your education equivalent to a United States level of CAPT requirements? And so they do a lot of that work for us, for the foreign trained. From different states, we look and see, was this person ever disciplined? And if so, what kind of problem was it? We don't get a lot of information, unfortunately, from state to state, but we will allow someone to come here and practice in Illinois. And then we're also very involved with monitoring CEs and making sure that the physical therapists, physical therapist assistants, 
all are, are following the um, Practice Act, and then we get involved with discipline. And so with, with discipline, the uh, very first case I had was one of my students, actually. So when I went on the board, I was pretty wide-eyed and confident that I was going to make everyone a great therapist. And then the first case was a student of mine. It kind of brings you to reality that there's a lot of people that are practicing not up to the code of Practice Act here in Illinois. And so it's our job as the licensing and disciplinary board to take corrective action against people that violate a practice act or violate a patient's trust or are accused of fraud or practicing outside the scope of their practice. So we get all these cases and we review the cases, uh, we vote on the cases, and we also meet downtown with the director of the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. So it's basically helping to give out licenses, to remove licenses, or get people so they get help. We want people practicing in the state that are ethical and legal and competent. You know, Ricardo, with your experience on the board, what is the most common reason that a PT is under disciplinary review? Here lately uh, in Illinois, we've had I came off the board in April. I was on for two terms plus six months, so eight and a half years. But right before I came off the board, we had a rush of complaints for on physical therapists performing dry needling. So we had about all of a sudden in a few week period, 18 complaints of people saying that physical therapists are practicing outside their scope of practice in dry needling. Because here in Illinois, there was an unofficial ruling in 2014 where dry needling was said to be outside the scope of practice for a physical therapist by a lower level person in the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulations. So once that happened, physical therapists really cannot practice dry needling here in Illinois. We had a group of therapists come before the board probably about six years ago, and they presented what dry needling is and asked if the PT board thought it was within the scope of practice, and we unanimously said it was in the scope of practice. So the PT board does not have a problem with dry needling, but there's many boards under the ITFBR. So the medical society is actually the acupuncturist that had a problem because they're using their needle. So the, for example, the FSBPT has a nice paper showing that it's in within the scope of practice. APTA has said it's within the scope of practice, but the way it works, Illinois trumps both of those. Wow. Is, is there any legislation or push to try to reverse that that you know of in Illinois? Unfortunately, you know, Illinois, we're like the, the only state with very limited direct access. We're, I have a very, very powerful medical society that we have to contend with. What happened like in Washington state, the therapist that went to a course, if you guys know what happened in Washington, they went to a course on dry needling. Everyone there had their licenses reprimanded for attending the course. The person who hosted the course, they were reprimanded. It was pretty serious. It was facing litigation. So right now, I continue to go around and tell physical therapists not to perform dry needling because you're, you're at risk. And, and these 18 that came through, what happened, people, someone looked at a Google search, physical therapist, probably Illinois, dry needling. Anyone that had anything that said dry needling on a resume, on a website, they were the ones that were called in. So there's really no evidence that any of these people performed dry needling, but someone's going after all these therapists to try to make examples of them. And you just don't want to be that therapist. Interesting. So besides dry needling, what are some of the other common reasons that someone is under disciplinary review? Well, uh, an interesting little fact, in healthcare, there are two main healthcare professionals that are constantly being scrutinized and have complaints. Physical therapists, very, very low. 
Number one is massage therapists, and number two is veterinarians. So we're, we're not at risk, really. It's very, very small percentage of complaints that we get based on the thousands of physical therapists and physical therapist assistants. But lately, we've also had a, a rush of cases on fraud. So a physical therapist overbilling, physical therapists uh, billing for services they didn't render. We're seeing that more. Also, what unfortunately we're seeing is are like retaliation complaints. So a physical therapist has a job at, say, a, a community hospital. The therapist has an opportunity somewhere else, gives a two-week notice and leaves. Well, the employer is pretty mad, so they say that the therapist didn't do a couple discharge notes and files a complaint against them. <laughs> so unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of those kind of retaliation complaints, which don't have a lot of merit, really. But we still treat everything. We analyze everything, review it, discuss it. We're seeing a lot of that as well. With that being said, Ricardo, what do you feel are the best ways that PTs can protect themselves from ever facing a disciplinary action that we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I was thinking about this. A uh, couple couple things. One is make sure you know your practice act. Take the time to kind of read through it. You know, a lot of people are, are ignorant of the practice act. You know, they say things like, you know, PTAs are not allowed to do grade three mobilizations in Illinois, and it's not in the Practice Act. There's a lot of things that people assume are in there, but there's really not. So I would say, number one, read the Practice Act for yourself and understand what's in it and what's not in it. Number two, I think, improve your resume. Uh, if you have a good resume out there, you know, show that you're a good therapist. Do you take CE courses? You're teaching, you're doing journals, you're trying to help the, the profession. I think that goes a long way with any type of benefit of the doubt thing. So improve your resume. Communication is important. You have to, I think a lot of times you could make a, a mistake with a patient, but if you communicate well with them, let them know what happened, you're honest with them, you're not going to have problems. If you're a good person, typically you're not going to have a problem. Uh, another thing is improve your competence. So uh, get out there, take courses, you know, get specialization, read the journal, be a member. I think membership makes a big difference. What happens, a couple cases I've been as an expert witness, the lawyer came out and said, well, this person's not even a member of the APTA. Why aren't you a member? Are you unable to be a member? Are you been ever had that withdrawn? They make a big deal about it, but just being a member can help a lot as well. Cool. And from a documentation standpoint, are there things that we can document to help? I just make sure you, you document what what you do and if it's anything that can be a little questionable just be a little more precise with it simple things like in and out times can make a difference ricardo how did you become involved with writing test questions for the npte and ocs exams when i took my entry-level licensing exam me and my friend studied every tuesday night and back then you took it twice a year either in november or february and we overstudied and we did didn't want to go back to work and tell them we couldn't work anymore. So when I took the test, I thought it was a test that my wife could have passed. And I only say that because she's a dietitian. I was like, you know, I think I'd like to make this test a little bit better. So I was approached back in 1997 about writing questions. And so I went on to the item writer review committee and I started writing test questions. And I thought it would be you know, pretty straightforward. Just write a couple of questions and, you know, serve your duty. But I, I got to learn. I, I wrote about 10 questions going in and it was a wonderful experience because I wrote these questions that had a great stem, you know, a good story, one right answer and three plausible distractors. I thought they were enticing. But once you get there and you put your question up on the wall and other therapists look at it, you find out there's maybe three right answers and, uh, or maybe it wasn't such a good stem opening up to, to the question. So, uh, you really learn a lot about how to make sure you're precise. And also, there's more than one answer. So, for example, if you have someone that has numbness in their 
their middle finger. There's dermatomes in different charts. I'll tell you which dermatome it is. The middle finger seems to be the most consistent, but the fourth finger or the second finger, they tend to have multiple overlaps. So you have to make sure that any book that's out there, that C6, for example, is not the middle finger in any of them. So it really opens you up to other texts and other references and other therapists' opinions. So I, I really enjoyed it. And then with the specialty exam, I took the specialty exam, and I'm a very fast test taker for the, for the OCS. And so when I took the test, it took me pretty much all seven hours to do it. And I thought it was more a reading comprehension. I thought it was way too much information in the STEM. There's things in the STEM I didn't need to read about. So I thought they were just trying to test our reading proficiency. And I'm a very fast reader, and I didn't like it. So I just volunteered to help write the test questions for the OCS. And again, it was eye-opening. When you work on a specialty exam, it's a little higher level. There's a lot more that's going into it. And it really was helpful to go through that process as well. But after nine years of writing test questions, I felt a little bit worn out. <laughs> so I decided to let someone else write some questions for a while. Ricardo, do you think you could tell us about how the NPTE was developed and how the NPTE question selection process works? Yeah, it, it's a really a very detailed, a lot of statistics, a lot of analysis. It's a huge team of experts that work on a NPTE exam. So if you're not successful on an NPT exam getting like the 600, you're never going to win a uh, case of complaining or saying it was a wrong question or there's two answers. It's not going to happen. They're statistically analyzed by a huge team of people. So they, I was an item writer. So I was on the item writer review committee. So my job was to get a question that was acceptable to pass on to the next stage. And we all looked at each other's questions. Okay, this is a good one. Or get another distractor that's plausible. So I was on the beginning part. But there is a team of people at FSPPT that really spend a lot of time. They love this stuff. They love statistics. Each question has a, a time on it. Someone who passes a test, how long it takes them to take the question. It has pass-fail rates for each question. Each test version out there has a different pass rate because it depends on the questions. So there's a, a lot of work that goes into it. I can speak on behalf of the, uh, just for the part of the item writers, but if you go to the FSBPT website, they have a, a pretty good list of information for anyone that's interested in learning about the process. And if you're already a physical therapist, there's opportunities to become a content expert. There's nine areas of specialty within the APTA. And if you're open to new ideas and you're, you don't shy away from being challenged, um, you're open to uh, criticism, then I, I would look into writing test questions. It was a great learning experience for me. And I also think it helped with uh, writing test questions when I went to teach at a PT school. Hmm. What do you feel are some of the strengths and limitations of the NPTE? Well, I, I have nothing but praise. When I, once you get involved with writing test questions and you attend meetings and they have uh, several meetings a year where they help item writers and they have meetings where they, they tell you about board issues across the country, it really opens up your your uh, mind and how many people are working behind the scenes that are trying to make this test a, a good quality test to discriminate between those who should and shouldn't have a PT license. And it's a really good deal out there. We have uh, just recently, there's a lot of problems with the test being compromised. That's something that really upsets people like myself to help write these questions. If you guys remember several years ago, we had four countries that were caught cheating on the licensing exam. We had Pakistan, India, Egypt, and the Philippines, and they were cheating. And so we decided that we can't let people cheat on this test and become physical therapists. So we banned those four countries from participating in the NPTA exam. Uh, a Supreme Court in Georgia said it was unconstitutional. So we had to come up with something quick because our tests were compromised. So we started writing more questions. 
And then new graduates uh, that are graduating recently had to have 50 questions that were graded and analyzed, but weren't counted for or against them. Unfortunately, uh, that was a little bit of a sticking point, but we have to do something to make sure that we have enough questions in the bank to have a good quality test to help discriminate. And this is an example of some other cheating. We had therapists be caught with contact lens cameras taking pictures of the exam. We had caught a person with hundreds of cameras in her scarf. We caught people selling questions on Craigslist. Uh, so we don't we don't want that. And and that's why we had a problem a couple years ago. The FSBPT and item writers uh, in New York, they had unlimited test taking. So we had someone that took the state board exam over 60 times, Jeez. six zero times. That's not safe. And what this person did, they paid their $600, whatever, and they took the 10 questions, stopped, signed up again, took the test, 10 questions, stopped. They were memorizing test questions. And that person, you know, should never be a physical therapist, obviously, but they're compromising the test. So FSBPT recently decided that there's got to be a lifetime max. And so people like that person who was only looking at 10 questions wasn't scoring anywhere near 600. They shouldn't be allowed to take the test. And the stats they have shows that anyone that doesn't get a 400 has a 0% chance of, t of passing. So if you get two low scores, you don't get a third chance. You get a lifetime max of six. And I think that's safe. So New York was very unhappy with this. <laughs> New York threatened to write their own NPTE wow. exam. They didn't come to our meeting two years ago. They didn't want to come to the meeting because they, they look at all that revenue. Because word gets out. If you are not going to do well or if you don't speak English well, go to New York. You have unlimited chances to pass the test. You wouldn't want to come to Illinois here, right, where we are, where I practice, because you get three chances and then a fourth if you petition the board, do a clinical, and uh, take it again. So and the FSBPT has a tool that is awesome. I'm so proud of it. I'm confident that it's discriminating against those who can and can't pass. It's taking the steps to weed out those people that are cheating, weeding out the people that can't speak English well, because there's a TOEFL requirement to sit for it and all that. And I think they do a, a really good job. So if you guys could only see all of the work that goes involved in this, different committees and all these researchers and statisticians, they love this stuff. And I'm really proud of it. I'm, and I really wouldn't want to change anything with FSBPT and how they hand, handle the NPTE exam. Interesting. And, you know, with physical therapy practice and research changing, as we're seeing more in many different avenues, including pain science, therapeutic alliance, uh, different methods of assessing global movement, exercise and strength and conditioning, and, and the list goes on and on. Um, in your opinion, what would be required to happen in order to change the content layout of the NPTE? Well, if you go at FSPPT, they do have like general categories of you know, sometimes people walk out of the test and say, oh, that was definitely a cardiopalm test. That was all cardiopalm or that was all neuro. But they, they really do break it down uh, as best they can. A lot of questions can fall into multiple categories. Uh, the ones that are really challenging are ethics questions to find three plausible distractors and one only one correct answer. But uh, they use many books, many references. And that, my advice to people taking the exam is to look at books because Every question comes out of a book somewhere. So we don't use gurus. So, you know, Kevin Wilkwright mentioned is a you know, great therapist. We don't quote him as being the expert. It has to be somewhere published. And there can't be a competing reference that shows that that is contrary. So if you want to get something on the test, you could definitely publish. It has to be published material somewhere. And then uh, the item writers, they typically go with what their strengths are. So if you're more of a, a knee orthopedic person, you tend to write more knee questions. So if you have someone that has something to contribute in the area of exercise science or pain, 
I would suggest getting out there, helping with the exam, and kind of skew it a little bit into more current research that's going on. And that's it's fair game. If it's out published, then that's something that you could use as a reference when you write your question. So I think the key is is uh, there is some content you can look at how they break it down. But if it's something you feel strongly about, then I would suggest people get out there and volunteer and you know spend a year uh, writing questions. You know, Ricardo, there's something that I hear a lot from other experienced clinicians as well as novices and new grads in that many of them feel that the content on the exam and some of the stuff they were getting taught in school in preparation for this exam uh, didn't really significantly help them transition to the real world when they were practicing. I'm curious as to what your response would be to those clinicians. Yeah, there's, you know, one of the things that we have to keep in there are things like that aren't that well used anymore, kind of like diathermy. If we take it out of the content area, then we can't make that a scope of our practice anymore. So I think a lot of people are hesitant to take certain things out. Uh, that's not like a, a big focus, but still there are things that are taught in PT school that, that have to be uh, kept in the bank of questions, an item writer test, just to keep it within the scope of practice. There's groups that do practice studies. If you remember a few years ago, back in the 90s, they looked at the relationship between a PT and PTA. It was on the road with Joe, did it, and Joe, Joe Black with the APTA. And he went from different schools and asked what the role was. And we had all these studies that they spent a lot of quality time looking at what a PT and PTA could and couldn't do. And that should reflect the licensing exam. So if we saw that as a practice pattern somewhere, we try to incorporate that somehow in our licensing exam. But that's like the politics of it. You know, we have, we're trying to keep what we have and continue to do what we can do. In order to do that, we got to keep that in our scope of practice. Ricardo, do you think that we need to change the content that's being taught in schools? Like, for example, we spend a lot of time learning about certain modalities such as ultrasound, but, you know, the evidence really doesn't conclude it's really that overall effective. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a real frustration. I know I have students that come with me and say, well, why do you do ultrasound? You know, it's, it's, evidence doesn't show that it really does anything. Or, Well, you're right. There are some things that we do that don't have strong evidence as far as the, the research goes, but there's still you know, anecdotal evidence, which is still evidence. There's your experience, which is still evidence. Uh, there's patient expectations, which that's a low level, but that's something that's also important. And then there's the, the politics of keeping your, your um, referring sources happy. There's a lot of that going on. But I think out of what you learn in school, if you ask anybody what they learn in school, what they actually use in practice, you're going to find a pretty big discrepancy. In school, in order to keep accreditation and to keep hitting the right parts for CAPTI, you have to teach certain things in certain parts of the curriculum. And that's a CAPTI requirement. So we have CAPTI as being one requirement. You have the FSBPT being another. Then you get the NPTE. Then you got state laws. And then you got national laws. Then you got APTA recommendations. There's a lot of competing factors. And it's hard to try to juggle all this and keep everyone happy. But there are some things that we keep just to try to keep the profession uh, alive and keep those few therapists that you swear by their evidence that ultrasound's effective or that uh, they've seen it in their 20 years of practice that ultrasound works. So we try to keep people happy and knowing that physical therapists are responsible for their own behavior. So if you feel that a certain modality is not effective, then you won't do that, and that's fine. That's, that's the correct thing to do. But if another therapist truly believes it, then... They, they should be allowed to perform that modality as long as there's no harm. Do you think that you could tell us about how the OCS board exam question selection process goes? Well, yes. So uh, for the OCS, 
like I said, I thought it was such a, a long test that I decided to, to put my hat in the ring and I wrote questions. And one, one of the things that was kind of interesting, as a more experienced therapist, we become a little more critical on certain things. So I consider myself to be more efficient with knee and shoulder injuries. And I don't really I spend a lot of time with SI or TMJ. But when you get your scores, I noticed that I scored 100% TMJ, 100% SI. I don't really see that in my clinic. And I scored in the 60s for knee, which I could... So I'm like, wait, something is probably not right with this question. There's maybe more than one right answer, or I read way too much into it. So uh, I started writing the, the test questions for that in 2000 for three years, 2002. And that was, that was challenging. It was a little step up. You have a little more... Uh, uh, different literature to look into with the different specializations and the manual folks and the exercise folks. And I, I, I really thought it was a challenge coming in with the experience from the item writing for the NPTE. I thought it'd be pretty straightforward, but it was, it was pretty challenging. But again, a great learning experience. And you surround yourself with other experts. And it's interesting because you have four experts with self-proclaimed experts in different parts of the treating a knee or something. It's neat to get us together. And, uh, try to get a consensus. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's awesome. What do you feel, Ricardo, are some of the strengths and the limitations of the OCS board exam? Well, number one, the cost. It, right now, if you're going to take it for the first time and you're an APTA member, it's $1,300. That's a lot of money. And that's only good for 10 years. So I'm up next year for my third specialty. Uh, so it was thirteen. It was 1100 when I first did it. I think replacement's like a thousand. I have to do another thousand. So I think it's getting to be, it's a lot, pretty expensive. That's my number one complaint. But, uh, I think a lot of people, when you put it on your resume, your business card, people within the profession say, Oh, wow, OCS, that's great, you know. But also I, I like about it is that I can't take the test again because I help write it. So I have to do the journal approach. I have to have a portfolio and I'm already very organized with my resume, but it's nice to, for professional growth when you do the portfolio to see exactly where you are. You know, what have I done in the last 10 years? Oh, I've done all this teaching, but no publications or I need to do more expert witnessing or I need to do more clinical practice maybe if you're in academia. So I think it's a good way to make sure people are practicing and it gives them a good self-assessment at 10 years and see that they want to spend another thousand dollars. They find it's important enough to them to invest the time to fill out the application, which is pretty long, and also to spend the money. But I found it to be helpful, and I always look for challenge. And when I first took it, it was a good challenge for me, and uh, it was something that I think helped me focus and study, and something that I would recommend for a therapist that's specializing in one of the nine specialty cool. areas. I know I looked at some APTA studies looking at, you know, 50, I think 56% of employers think that you should get a raise when you pass this. So one of the places I worked, we had a really nice clinical career ladder. And one of the things you could do to get up one rung was specialize, either get a master's in manipulative therapy or OCS or something like that. So I think there was a direct uh, relationship with that. But it is a big investment. So if you're going to go into academia or if you're going to do a lot of public speaking in the among peers, I think it's a one additional tool you could have to look credible. So it could be get a PhD, it could be the OCS, it could be, uh, you know, uh, do a mentorship program under some special person or residency. Any edge you can have, I think is good. And I always kind of thought since day one, when I graduated, 
pretty much you, if you had a pulse, you had a job. I was a bachelor's. My program was a bachelor's in physical therapy. So a lot of people said, oh, I'm happy. I'm not going to do anything. But I think you should continue to grow and I think you should continue to challenge yourself. And I think it helps even superficially just to help you look a little more marketable. So in that superficial way, if it might be worth a thousand dollars, but I think the, the learning experience is worth more than that. If you could change one aspect of healthcare education, DPT or otherwise, what aspect would that be and how? Well, the, the first thing that jumps into my head, which is not realistic, but I, I look at what this education is costing nowadays, and that, that's the one thing that really concerns me is yes. uh, it's very expensive. I believe at Northwest, Northwestern, I think it's like $66,000 a year, and for seven years, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of debt. So that's one thing that I, I'm talking, I'm thinking about a lot. I, I don't want to brag, but when I went to PT school at UIC, it was $2,600 a year. So back then, it was very affordable. I could work a minimum wage job of $4 an hour and pay for my education. And I, I'm fearful that we might be losing some very good physical therapists that come from a lower socioeconomic group. And that's a concern, but I don't have an answer for that one. But that's a really big concern of mine is that we're not getting the right people. And also, another thing I really can't control too much then I'll get to my, the answer. But I think we're also attracting a different type of person. You know, back when I was applying for physical therapy school, we had a lot of people apply. But now I think it's with a, you need a, a GRE score so high. You need a, a GPA, which is really, really high. You, you need these things that are very, very high. And I think a lot of people might have stories or some things going on in their lives that maybe they aren't great on a GRE, but they could be a great physical therapist. So there's probably be something else out there that we're, we can look to to see who's a good physical therapist and hopefully try to attract those types of people as well, not just high achievers or people that score really well on GREs. But I don't have an answer for that. But what I, what I would like to see, though, when I went to PT school back in the bachelor's degree, we had a research project we had to do. And I think all PT, PTA schools, they should all have something to do with a project. So it could be something simple like uh, advocacy. So maybe you could have a, a semester of advocacy, go to Springfield, fight for us so we get ability to do try, try lead needling. Or here in Illinois, we have uh, napperpaths that want to be grandfathered in to be physical therapists. Napropath education is nothing like a physical therapist. But we need people that are young that could go and argue for us and make a case of what they've seen in their clinicals, what they've learned in school, to advocate on behalf of the profession, but also the patients. If they can't, don't like that, then maybe they can do clinicals overseas. I think this is a very big world, but it's getting smaller. And I th I'd like to see an opportunity for students to do some international travel on their either their breaks or their during their clinicals, just to see that we have a lot to be thankful for here in the United States for all the blessings we have with our economy and our education and the tools we have to learn. And I think we should share those with others. So I think that would be a great opportunity to expose people in PT school. If that doesn't seem more right because of uh, legal issues for schools, I think schools should start a pro bono clinic. When I was at Northwestern, I tried to get that through, but I, I couldn't get through the stumbling blocks. But that would be wonderful. You could have people in the community who need physical therapy get access to physical therapy by students who are energetic and eager and very willing to learn and be directed by staff, could be physical therapists in the community or at the educational program. And I think just to get more involved with the community because I don't want to become a profession that's not intertwined with the community. And I think we have so many gifts as physical therapists. We could do teaching. We can volunteer with injured warriors. We could 
teach kids. We could do peds. We could do neuro. We could do expert witness. We could become, uh, sit on boards. There's so many options and opportunities available that students, I don't think, know about them enough. And I don't know if it's teaming them up with a good mentor or having opportunities they could select, but uh, I'd like to see more community involvement with the students. I know they got full plates, but sometimes when you do things to help others, it's got to hurt a little bit. I think it's a good lesson to learn. No, I think those are some fantastic points, Ricardo. And I agree a lot with what you said, you know, especially the first thing that you said kind of about, you know, making it more financially viable because, you know, because I mean, the cost of tuitions are just going up and the salaries for PTs are kind of overall staying the same. And, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I could see the needle shifting in the near future if that doesn't change. Like they're going to go to more healthcare professions that are going to pay more like EAs. You know, I, I, it scares me to say that. And I hate to say that, but I, that's what I could see that happening. Yes. Awesome. I mean, that was some great you know, insight on a lot of things, Ricardo, in terms of, you know, talking to kind of about your experience from education, about kind of how the disciplinary board works, kind of how that whole process works, but also going into detail about, you know, how the questions are made for the NPT and OCS and kind of about those exams in general. And I think that was very enlightening and very helpful to our audience, because especially to those younger therapists and even students, particularly for that matter, who really don't know a whole lot about how the process works. And I'll be honest, I was one of them. I, I didn't really know a whole lot about how it worked. I mean, Took a class in score builders at the time, and I went from what some of my the faculty had told me, but I never really yeah. got that much in depth to it. And I feel like now, I feel like too part of it is you know we feel like in order to kind of give the best solution to the problem, we got to consider and know how it works from all angles because that's how you can make the best decision if you know ev- you know how everything works. But awesome! But I mean, right. thank you so much for you know for coming on the show and, and all that stuff. It was fantastic, Ricardo. How can people get in contact with you? Well, I either email or my phone number, either or. My email, fernandez23 at usa.net. And my phone number is 708-341-2357. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything, man. And hopefully we get to have you on the show in the near future to kind of talk about your intense experience, you know, being a PT educator in different countries. I think that'd be a fantastic perspective to kind of share with a lot of people that especially don't know about that and kind of how that differs from education kind of here in the U.S. Thanks for having me. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.